I want to talk with you today about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this changing America of ours. As we have been reminded in recent days, maybe especially. I want to think with you about what it means to be faithful to the cause of Christ and the spirit of our God in the midst of a nation where gay and lesbian persons, same-sex marriages, uh, individuals like Caitlyn Jenner are now a very visible part of our national landscape. I know that much of the conversation that has gone on, at least within the evangelical blogosphere and internet over these past uh, couple of weeks, has mainly been focused on how we can protect ourselves from all of these changes, how we can defend ourselves against these changes. But as much as I can understand where that sentiment comes from, it strikes me that it is difficult for me to personally imagine Jesus making self-protection his primary focus. On the contrary, as I read the Gospels and I watch Jesus in moments of conflict and crisis, when the secular government was coming after him, for example, or when the um, uh, religious authorities of his time were uh, challenging uh, his ministry, when I see Jesus in these moments, I never see him retreating, bunkering down, or lashing back. Not to say that he doesn't at moments speak uh, sharp and, and forceful words. There are moments when he overturns the tables of the money changers. But, but in general, the ministry of Jesus in these moments of crisis is simply to try and clarify in word and in deed the province of that far greater kingdom which he represents, which he comes from, which he seeks to establish, and which ought to be our concern as well. That is the kingdom that I want to think about with you on this Nation Under God Sunday. And I want to start a conversation that's going to go on in two more installments beyond this one. I want to start a conversation about how you and I can walk a brave, outgoing uh, way between the two conventional uh, approaches or courses that are typically presented to us uh, amidst the sexual politics of our time. It has been uh, often the case that we have been effectively called to make our choice between two uh, very distinct ways of coming at uh, these issues. Uh, on the one hand, it has looked like we uh, would make need to decide whether we were going to abandon uh, the truth and the authority of God's word, uh, or whether we are going to uh, offer to non-heterosexuals and others that practice a different sexual ethic a pretty shallow kind of, of love and hope. In other words, we were going to have to decide to open the gates to whatever or to, 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 to defend the fortress, in a sense, and offer a pretty shallow sort of nominal niceness to all of those bad outsiders out there. Right? This has been sort of the choice of ways often presented. As I've sat with the scriptures myself over now many years of watching these dynamics, thinking about it, processing it as a pastor, I have come to believe there is actually a faithful third way. 
There is a gracious evangelicalism that neither forsakes the Bible and its authority nor abandons lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender persons who, like you and I, need God and many are seeking God and for whom Jesus came to give his very life. So let me be blunt about the stakes of this conversation, if I may. To find that godly way, that godly third way that I'm trying to describe, we're going to have to distinguish ourselves from the shrill voices of the far left and the far right on these matters. And that is going to be very difficult for us, at least for some of us, for two good reasons. First, because there is safety in in the shop-worn, simple, hard-edged, firm solutions that are offered sometimes by the two extremes. Not necessarily the life that Jesus modeled in these things, but safety to be sure, certainty to be sure. Secondly, it's difficult not to self-identify with our most extreme friends because they are our friends, right? They're the people we do life with that we walk with. They're they're our companions on life's journey. And even if the call of God is to cleave to him above all others, we're, we're naturally drawn to the affections and the opinions of our friends. Now, in light of this reality, what I am going to say today and in the next two installments of this series will be very, very challenging at times to everybody. Uh, Many of us will will be looking to be confirmed in what we already believe. We will be listening for the buzz language, the particular ways of saying stuff, and we'll be on the lookout for all kinds of heresies of the left or the right and, and find ourselves surging at moments Uh, along the way. I am pretty sure that I will upset everybody in this room at some point. I'm pretty confident of that, that at some point it's going to get uncomfortable, irritating, maybe even anger-producing for many of us. My only comfort on this is that that's the reaction Jesus got. He upset the left and the right in his day. But he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, so hang on to Jesus. Because he has his hand on you and on me and on our church. And he is going to guide us as we go. Let me start out by observing, if I can, what I think is the context for this discussion. I want to start out by observing what I think are the variety of viewpoints that exist within this very room or within the community of folks that are listening from other places today. Let me just try and recognize some of those perceptions about current events. For example, we have uh, received uh, correspondence from our mission partners overseas. Uh, They are people who are serving the cause of Jesus in churches in other parts of the planet, other continents. And these folks have communicated to us a confusion about what in the world is happening in America. Uh, They say, we're praying for you. In America, the vast majority of the global church understands marriage as the uh, union of one man and and one woman. At least that's the target as the Bible describes it. And many of us in this room and outside wonder what would happen if we suddenly 
despite the public opinion here in America, despite the um, action of the Supreme Court, if we suddenly within the church abandoned the understanding of the covenant in those terms, what would happen to us in gaining the respect of many, many other Americans who all polls show are increasingly open-hearted on this particular subject, we would risk losing the respect, certainly engender the confusion of more than a billion of our brothers and sisters overseas. And so that's one of the issues, that's one of the, the feelings or concerns that's in this room. At the same time, there are others here, maybe you, who view the court's decision as a victory for civil rights. Many of us have friends or family or fellow church members who are part of the LGBT community, and the truth is we love these people. Our lives are bound up with these people, and we feel grateful, even if we don't say it out loud in certain company, we feel very grateful that this ruling advances for them the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that our nation's Declaration of Independence insists is the role of government to protect and to advance. And even if our, our own local church has not decided to offer those particular kinds of weddings, it matters to us that their marriage by the state or by other churches, will be recognized, will be acknowledged, will be respected. Uh, Here or in other places they might go, we're grateful for that. For others of us, the SCOTUS decision feels beyond upsetting. I mean, we can't even think about rights. All we can think about is the things that have changed. I mean, some of us have lived through the a staggering sexual revolution in our brief time here on this earth. I mean, we found ourselves watching a culture that has embraced cohabitation before marriage, childbearing and raising outside of marriage, open marriages, uh, serial divorce and remarriage, and increasingly pornography in the place of marriage. And some of us wonder, how many of the biblical boundaries are we going to violate? How many of the, uh, of the setups God has arranged for the benefit of human beings and, and the fulfillment of his intentions for us are we going to just ignore or change and, and think that we're going to continue to flourish as a people or continue to enjoy his grace upon us? And what's the next domino? I mean, what's next? I mean, how long before the polygamy lobby is before the Supreme Court. How long before the adult child marriage group is advocating its cause? What does this mean for kids? What does this mean for our future? Then there are others of us who empathize with the very vulnerable confession that journalist Jonathan Rao makes in his memoir, My 25 Years Without a Soul. Rao describes his life as a as a frightened young gay man tortured with the certainty that there is no place for the love that he experiences, that there is no home for who he is until he and enough fellow Americans decided that he had the right to marry. And Rao writes, They and I have found at last a name for my soul. It is not monster or eunuch nor indeed even homosexual. My name is Husband. It's Husband. 
Some of us get that. Some of us even respect that. We wonder why so many are angry or hateful when we or somebody we know is simply trying to move out of a lifestyle of promiscuity or out of a lifestyle of loneliness. So we know the Bible has got a lot to say about that, that, that it's not right for man to be alone, that promiscuity is not going to be healthy for human beings. We wonder why people who are just trying to move out of that life into a circle of covenant, that, that blessed vocation as a spouse or as a parent, we wonder why. Why we can't allow them this opportunity. How could God not be in that? Finally, there are some of us who were just so outraged by the SCOTUS decision, uh, just so uh, maybe legitimately threatened by what the court has done here that we can't even think in any other terms. I mean, there were four pretty bright justices that dissented on this opinion. I mean, it was really close. And those four uh, justices you know, raised all kinds of concerns. And some of us are thinking, yes, this was a terrible case of judicial activism. It was a violation of states' rights. It was an overreaching court. It was a a precursor to all kinds of legal attacks on the church and on religious institutions yet to come. And even if Justice Kennedy and the majority opinion states that there are going to be protections for religious institutions, don't worry, there'll be protections, rights of conscience for those organizations. We know how revolutions go. Some of us. And the sexual revolution is no different. Sooner or later, every revolution turns to crushing all dissenters. To persecuting all dissenters. So am I going to be seen as a bigot, you may wonder? Am I going to be persecuted, written off, simply for holding a view of sexual ethics that was once esteemed everywhere? that was once regarded as foundational in American life. This may not be an exhaustive list of all the perspectives present, but am I getting close to a few of them? I mean, I'd love to see a shake. Do you think I'm accurately describing some of what you're hearing or feeling in this time? Um. I mentioned this array of responses just to let you know that wherever you may be in making sense of our particular times, you're not alone. You're not alone. And I mean that in in, in two senses. First, there are other people here and elsewhere who, who feel the way you do, who are processing things the way you are. And I mean it secondly, because there are other people here and out there, Christians, who are viewing it differently than you are. And you are counting on me, I know, to sort all this out. (laughs) Right? To make it right. To declare definitively what is the right way. But I am not going to do that for you entirely. I'm going to give you help. What I mainly am going to try and do is thrust you into the arms of the one who is alone righteous, God himself, and and, and force an encounter for myself and for all of us with the full counsel of what this God says about our lives. 
Now, I want to recognize that even as I say those kinds of things, some of you are already feeling pretty nervous and pretty suspicious. Where is he going? Is he going to make me mad? Is he going to make me sad? Will this be bad? And I get it. Sometimes my sermons are pretty bad. But I'm asking you to hang with me because as I talk about finding a third way, a gracious kind of evangelicalism, I want to encourage us to face a brutal fact. The topic of sex, and especially homosexuality, has been the third rail in the life of the church, almost everywhere it's gone. Almost every church that has ever taken this issue into the, into the public discussion has watched that church divide. It's split churches, it's torn asunder denominations. It has been the hardest issue the church in modern times has had to deal with. And, and, and I understand that that risk exists here. It's really difficult. That's probably why I haven't gone here before this particular moment. But I think I have finally come to a point where I am seeing that the turmoil and the division that, this, that these issues are are creating, have so profoundly injured the unity of the body of Christ and its witness in the world that I think we have to try and talk about it in a fresh way. The church's inability thus far to combine civility and conviction uh, around this important sphere of life has strengthened cynics and it has bolstered atheists everywhere. The division of the church into camps of the right and of the left have alienated a lot of the younger generations around us who see Christians as either haters on the one side or cavers to a consumer culture on the other side. They're begging us, the younger people are, please get a heart or get a backbone when the truth is we need both. The body of Christ must both have a heart and a backbone. The world needs followers of Jesus to live in a truly Christ-like way. We must embody a kingdom together that sees neither a lax license to anything goes nor a killing legalism on the other side. Because neither of those ways are the way of Jesus. We must dare to ask the hard questions, and yet we must meet every single person with care humility, and hope. And if someone does not fill um, the job description for that kind of Christianity, we're going to lose a generation and more from the church, and we will eventually cease to be the distinctive and welcomed salt and light that the church has been for human civilization for so long. For so long. So here's my invitation. Here's Here's where I'm going. I want to ask you to go with me right into the teeth of this messy, complicated, controversial, vulnerable subject and just refuse to let go of each other until we all emerge with a deeper understanding of what the Bible says about human sexuality, how it's connected to human flourishing, and how uh, we genuinely love one another Every one of us, even where God is not finished with any one of us yet. And I want to start that conversation today by just suggesting two key discipleship principles for us to keep in mind uh, as we go on this journey. Uh, Both of them come from the mouth of Jesus 
as recorded in the Gospel according to St. Mark. And, and here's the first one. I tell you, said Jesus, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. In other words, accept no substitutes for God. Don't buy the parachurch opinion. Don't buy the political opinion. Don't buy your neighbor's opinion. Don't even buy my opinion. First and foremost, seek to love God, to know more of him, his will, his desires, with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor also as yourself. So let me put a little more point on it. The purpose of our life is not to be right. The purpose of human life is not to be right. The purpose of our lives is not to be socially, politically, or religiously correct. The purpose of our lives isn't to conform to get along with the hive mind of whatever group we associate with on social media or email or, or, or wherever else. It's, the purpose is not to be able to, to, to um, have something to talk about around the water cooler uh, because we all share the same political or religious pundits. The purpose of life, if you believe Jesus, the greatest commandment, the purpose is to love fully. That's to love fully with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as we would want to be loved. Now, Dallas Willard, immensely thoughtful on many topics within the Christian life, says that love is not about mushy feelings. It's not about indulgent tolerance. Love is often meek, but it's never weak. Love is vigorous and active. In fact, the biblical definition of love is, according to Willard, to will and work for the good of the other. Let me say that again. The definition of love, biblically, is not just to have a feeling or a thought. It's to actually will and work for the good of another. Now, that is a very important message for all of us to hear. I'm convicted by it myself. To, to, to really think about how I love. How fully do I really love? I think it is an especially important message for those of us who are conservatives to hear. Who in the LGBT community, for example, am I willing and working for the good of? Uh, I don't mean simply by trying to advance a particular agenda in a broad social sense. I'm saying, who am I personally willing to work and will for the good of? I don't mean an abstract. God could have loved in the abstract. He could have loved in, a, in theory. God could have loved at a distance. But God did not. He came in the flesh. He got involved. He sat down at the dinner table with people. He, he asked questions about their longings and their aspirations and their hopes. He, he got uh, down on his knees with people in the dust. He got involved, he hung around with people that the, the conservatives of his time disdained and rejected. He was himself despised and rejected by the religious people of his time because he did this. Right? Is that, is that your reading of what, what happens here in the Bible? So, 
so who, Dan, in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community do I know at a personal, vulnerable level? My kids know these people. Your kids are grand. Parents know these folks. I mean, if I'm a Christian and I can't name one same-sex attracted person with whom I have a relationship deep enough to know their story and their struggles and their aspirations, enough about them to know how to pray and how to pull for them, do I love even close to fully the way Jesus commanded and the way he modeled? Do I? It's a question for all of us to sit with. Because maybe I need to look for such people with whom to build an inquiring relationship. Or else I just need to get honest with myself and with God. That I am interested in religion and politics, but I'm not that interested in following Jesus, in following in the footsteps of Jesus. So that's the first discipleship principle that I hope we'll take with us as a lens on this journey. Secondly, here's a second basic discipleship principle. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. In other words... If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you will have to sacrifice something, maybe many things. You will have to be willing to die to self in some ways along the journey. You will have to sacrifice for the sake of the more of his kingdom. Again, that message is hugely relevant to every single one of us. But maybe it's especially relevant to those of us who are liberals or progressives by nature. Um, One of the great dangers that I see confronting modern America today is that we have become resistant to denying ourselves uh, much of anything. Uh, The good gift of freedom has gone to our heads. Uh, We have gotten to a place in our life where we insist on liberty in everything. And, um, and this freedom thing has become an idol in our time. We love our social liberties. We love our economic entitlements. We love our personal choices about absolutely everything. In fact, we have got an entire economy and a celebrity culture built around serving up to us whatever we have an appetite for and, in fact, creating appetites we didn't even have in the past And they give it to us as fast as possible till we don't just have appetites. Our appetites have us. (laughs) We're just driven by the impulse. We got to have this. We got to have that. We're hungry for more and more and more. So here's a hard question for every single one of us. Is there any area of life to which we grant God the right to say no? No. Is there any, this is not for somebody else, this is for you, this question. Is there any area of your life to which you grant God the right to say 
No. I, I, I'm putting a fence around that tree. You've got lots of options, but that's one I don't want you to, 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 to go to. Uh, don't, don't, don't go there. Don't have sex with that person. Don't, don't get involved in that way until you've made this commitment. Don't, 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 don't go there if you've made this particular vow. I want you to die to that particular political opinion or that racial prejudice or, or, or that religious viewpoint because it doesn't align with my kingdom. And I know that's hard for you to get, but I'm just telling you, you have to trust me on this. I can't make everything absolutely clear. I don't want you to do that. I've got reasons for that. You know that pride you have, that wrath, that um, envy, that greed, lust, uh, gluttony, sloth. You'll dress it up in all kinds of different ways. You'll perfume it, I know, says God. I know that it, it seems so delicious to satisfy those particular passions, but I'm saying to you, crucify them. Don't act out on those. Put them to death. Do we grant God the right to set a boundary any place? Or is this land of the free we're living in just another dressed-up version of that ancient garden? Are we back in Eden again? Are we back in the midst of all of the abundance of this time at a place just like Adam and Eve, unwilling to deny our right to whatever fruit happens to fascinate us because we just truthfully aren't that open to having a God other than ourselves. So, these are the sorts of questions that disciples need to ask themselves long before they try and foist this perspective and anybody else. They just have to ask themselves, what does it mean for me to truly love God by loving others in the very personal, present, outgoing way that Jesus models? And secondly, in what area of my life right now might God be calling me to deny or to die to something? Those are two of the lenses that we're going to need as we go forward on this journey, as we seek that third way that is either neither conservative or liberal in the way we've come to understand those terms, but which is actually the way of the kingdom of our God. And if you're open to going on that journey, would you signify that by bowing your head with me as we come before the Lord in prayer. Lord God, you above all others know who we are. And you above all others know what makes for life in all of its flourishing fullness. Quiet, we pray, the clamoring anger and fear and anxiety that surrounds us that too often rules us. Take us to that place of stillness, Lord, where we hear afresh your voice alone. And by the witness of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, raise up disciples and a church with that blend of grace and truth of love and sacrifice so needed right now in our communities and in our nation. 
Through Jesus Christ we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.